My name's Chris, one of the pastors here. It's good to be in this room teaching the Bible, singing about worthy is the lamb. And uh, it is a family Sunday, like Willie said. So uh, if you are a kid, student, can we just clap for them right now and let them know we love them, we're for them. Man, our greatest hopes and desires for you are not that you uh, grow up to be strong or athletic or pretty, but that you would grow up to love and worship Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our hope for the next generation and the kids and the students in this room. So, hey, we're going to jump in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 7 today. That's going to be the text. So if you've got your Bibles, get them open. And the thing I want to talk to us about today is what does it look like for us to walk with God and navigate hard seasons. So uh, we're all going to be in hard and heavy seasons of lives where our circumstances feel hard and heavy, where our relationships feel hard and heavy, where our finances feel hard and heavy, where our our relationships with other people, things at work feel hard and heavy. You guys know what that feels like. And uh, I want to ask the question today, when you find yourself in that kind of season where it feels like you're in the desert, it feels like you're on the run, it feels like you're under fire, how do you walk with God in hard heavy seasons. Like, what does it look like for you to navigate those and obey the Lord in hard and heavy seasons? That's the thing we're going to talk about, and I think it matters because here's what I know. Jesus promised, he said, on this side of eternity, uh, you will have trials of many kinds. He promises that on this side of eternity, you're going to walk through some hard things, okay? And here's what I know. I look around this room, and I know some of you guys are in that hard and heavy season right now. Others of you guys just came out of that season. You're so excited you're not there anymore. But others of us, we're heading into that kind of a season. Amen? So uh, this absolutely matters for us today. We're going to be looking at the life and the story of David. But before we jump in, let me tell you what I've learned about life. I've learned that life is filled with seasons. It's filled with seasons that you wish you could slow down in. And it's filled with seasons that you could speed through. Have you ever felt that? There's seasons in your life where you just want to just like drink it in, hold on to it, slow down, and let that moment marinate because relationships are good, health is good, kids are good, marriage is good. It, it just feels like you wish you could just hold on to that moment. And other times in your life, it's, it's filled with seasons where honestly, you're not trying to take any pit stops, bro. You're not trying to pull over and get the scenic view. You're just trying to speed down I-80 and get down through it, okay? Like you get past Grand Island and you're like, there's nothing here. I'm just trying to speed through the rest until I get to Denver. Am I not right? Nobody else goes 126 on that? Okay, good for you. I'm glad you guys are spiritual Christians out there in Shadron. Okay, so here's the deal. There's seasons where we could do that. And here's why I know I had a recent one of those moments where I wish you could just slow down in uh, this summer. It was uh, a summer night, beautiful summer night. I don't know what you guys love to do uh, with your kids during the summer, but one of the things I love to do at the Haruska household is we love to do milkshakes, okay? We are a milkshake family. Now, every guy in here has the thing that you technically believe you're better than every other man in this room in, okay? Some of you guys are like, I'm ribs, dude. You put me on a smoker, I'll dominate. Some of you ladies are like, put me around a lasagna and let me just show the other women in the world why they're incompetent, okay? Like, do we not have that thing that we have a little pride around? Okay, for me, just so you all know, I, don't, I hate to brag, especially from this platform, but I'm literally better than all of you at making milkshakes, okay? Uh, and everybody knows it. Everybody in my family knows it. So I go to my kids one night, and I say, hey, how about this, guys? It's milkshake night, okay? It's a Friday night. They don't have school. They can get hyped up on sugar. It's, it's going to be a milkshake night. So it's Friday night. So I say, how about this? It's after dinner. Kids, run upstairs. Put your jammies on. I got a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and almost a two-year-old little girl. And so for the first time in the history of the Haruska household, 
household, all three of my kids are sprinting up the stairs to get their jammies on, okay? Uh, Nobody else gets that except if you're a parent. You know it's like usually a wrestling match. You've got a kid over your shoulder and you're dragging one up the stairs trying to get them and their jammies. Anyways, so nobody else gets that. Okay, well, I've been there. Okay, that was my life like last night. And so it's cool that you have no sympathy for parents of young children. Anyways, so I tell them, hey, you got to go upstairs. So the first time they're sprinting up, they come back down. And as they're getting ready in their jammies, uh, I get all the ingredients out and I get the blender out and they come down and everybody kind of sits up on our counter uh, countertop and kind of place them up there, which is a safety hazard. But um, you know, all of a sudden, my, uh, my six-year-old son, he's like scooping the ice cream in, and his goal is to basically fill it to max capacity, okay? And so he wants it so thick that the thing can barely blend, okay? And then my girl, Lucy, who hasn't seen a cookie she doesn't like ever in life, is doing the game where she's like one double stuff for the milkshake one for me, you know, and she's kind of playing this game and she's eating them as she's going. They're all like gooed up by the time they get in there. So uh, we do that. We, we finally blend it all up and, and I put a, you know, whole milk and whipped cream in this thing because I don't know if you know how the story ends, but when you get to heaven, you get a new resurrection body. So I'm just naming and claiming that already, okay? I'm going to have my hair back and my abs. It's going to be an amazing, amazing scene. And so, uh, so it, that, that's what we do. And we kind of get to the moment where I pour it out. We go outside and we sit on the deck. And it's just one of those summer nights, right? You guys know those summer nights. where the, It's just the sun is setting. The summer air is fresh and beautiful. The birds are chirping. And as a parent, there's this moment that is literally priceless where your kids are in your jammies. They're sitting on your lap and they're silent. Nobody's fighting, nobody, and they're sitting still. And you, I just had this thought, like, I just don't want this moment to end. Because what happens after this moment is we got to go back upstairs and we got to brush teeth and somebody's going to be upset about brushing their teeth and somebody's going to have spilt it on themselves. We're going to have to do, you just know that this moment won't last forever. But in this moment, kids are quiet. They're so proud of themselves because they helped make the milkshake. They're beaming with joy outside. And you're just saying, you know what? I want to hold on to this moment. Have you had a moment like that in a relationship with your kids? Maybe at work, just things like things are good in this moment. And the reason you've got to appreciate moments like that is because not every season of your life is going to be milkshake time with the kids. Amen. There's going to be seasons where there's depression. There's going to be seasons where the anxiety feels paralyzing. There's going to be seasons where you and your kids aren't in a good place, but there's rebellion against parents and kids. Uh, There's seasons where your best friend betrays you. There's seasons where your spouse wounds you. There's seasons where your career doesn't go the way you thought it would go. There's seasons in life, amen? And they're not all good, and they sometimes can be really hard. And here's what happens. Can we just keep it real? When you find yourself in that season, do we not start to wrestle with God? Like, we start to wrestle with God. I start to wrestle with God. And when I find myself in that season where where my marriage is hard and my finances are tight and the kids aren't doing what I want them to do and it just feels heavy and hard, I start to wrestle in my relationship with God. And I start to say, God, where are you? Because I feel stuck. I feel forgotten. I feel overlooked. And God, if you're real, it doesn't feel like you're answering my prayers. I know that you said your timing is perfect, but it feels like you're late to the party on this one. Have you ever asked those kind of questions? Have you ever wrestled with God in a heavy and hard season in a real way and got real honest about what you're feeling? Because sometimes there's this massive friction that can happen in our relationship with God because we're stuck right here and we thought we would be there by now. We thought we'd be married by now and we're not there yet. We thought we would be, uh, have those kids by now and we're not there yet. We thought we'd be happy in our marriage by now. Nobody else is laughing. Okay. Um, too close to home. Okay, sorry, we'll just move on. We thought we wouldn't be broke anymore by now. Have you felt that friction? 
Have you not felt this? I'm still here, God. I'm still in this place here, and I feel stuck, and I thought by now I would be there. And if you've ever asked those questions, that's exactly where David's at. Because David was promised that he's going to be the next king of Israel at a young age. And the promise uh, was from God to David, and he said, listen, I've got a plan and a purpose for your life. And after that, do you guys know the story of David? He's just on the rise. Like David just hits a season of his life where it's all good. Like if there was a theme song for David in that season of life would be all I do is win, 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 no matter what. Okay, that's DJ Cali. If you guys have been listening to Caleb, that's the other radio station you could put on. Okay, so, um, so he's just winning at life. So he gets in a fight with the largest dude in the land, Goliath. Everybody was intimidated by him. He was crossfitting and protein and doing the whole thing. And he smashes Goliath and wins victory for God's people, right? And so he's just, people are literally writing songs about him. It's that level of epic, okay? And then all of a sudden, uh, he marries the princess, Saul's daughter. He gets to marry her. He moves into the palace, okay? He's, he's getting an upgrade on this. He gets a position of power in uh, the king's palace. So he becomes kind of the leader of the military army. And so all of a sudden, David goes from a shepherd boy in a pasture to a guy who married the princess, who moved into the palace, who has position of power and has influence. It looks like his life is on the rise. He's in one of those seasons where he thinks it's all good. And then everything changes. And then Saul, his father-in-law, the king, loses touch with God and starts to see David not as his ally in God's work, but somebody who he feels threatened by. He gets insecure because what happens is Saul's uh, popularity is dwindling and David's is rising. And he thinks, surely this man's going to try to out me and means harm for me and is going to try to push the old dog aside when that was never David's heart or motive in any way, shape, or form. But Saul becomes paranoid. Saul becomes insecure. Saul stops walking with God. And so now what happens is in this section of scripture, chapter 20 through 27, what happens is this civil war kind of breaks out between Saul pursuing David. And all of a sudden, the father-in-law that was supposed to be loving, he starts throwing spears at David. He tries to have David assassinated. He runs David out of his castle, out of the city, away from his wife. And now David is a man who's hunted and he's homeless and he's hungry and he seems like he's been slandered. All position and authority has been taken from him. He's literally not a king on the rise, he's a king on the run. That's where David's at in this story, and he has to be asking himself the question, okay, God, this is not going like I thought it would go. I'm still here, and I thought I would be in the palace ruling and reigning by now. God, where are you? Because I've been crying out to you, and I've got this madman that is pursuing me. It's not me that has sinned. It's this man who sinned against me. So why am I still in this hard and heavy place? That's the kind of questions that David's asking. And I want us to look from him, look at him today and learn from him because here's what I know. Not all of you guys in this room are going to have a king that pursues you. Not all of you guys in this room are going to have a person, your father-in-law, I pray, will not throw a spear at your face. If that's happening, talk to somebody today. At least receive prayer, okay? Just at least accept that one. But But we all are going to walk through a heavy and hard season. And what David models for us is how do we navigate that and how do we hold on to God's promises and how do we wait on God's ways and how do we trust the Lord Jesus Christ in those hard and heavy seasons and not compromise our faith in hard and heavy seasons. So we need to learn from him. Number two, I think David points us to the greater king, Jesus Christ. We guys know this, that I've told you guys from the beginning, the hero of the story, even in 1 Samuel, is not David. The hero of the story is Jesus because David is a king and he is going to obey. But if you flip the, the chapter, 
chapter, a couple uh, uh, ways forward, you're going to see that he doesn't always obey, and he does blow it. And this is going to point us to the king that never did. This is going to point us to a king that waited on God's patience or God's timing perfectly, and that did all that God required and nothing more and nothing less. And so uh, even this story is pointing us to a king that will really give shadow and give imagery to Jesus Christ. And so there's good news today, church, and here's the good news. God is going to make a way for his people. And I want to ask this question through this text. What does it look like for us to walk with God in heavy and hard times and hard seasons? And I just want us to be a people in the midst of heavy and hard seasons and say God is a God that makes a way for his people. Amen? And uh, you guys need to know this. I hope this is your testimony in your life that Jesus Christ has made a way for me through some hard stuff. And that more than that, Jesus Christ has made a way for me to be reconciled back into right relationship with my heavenly father. Because did not Jesus come and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through the son. Is not God the God that made a way for his people when they were trapped in uh, Egyptian slavery and he made a way for them to have a way out and to have freedom? And is that not a picture of how God has made a way for his people all throughout history? How he's provided, how he's promised, how he's protected, how he's executed his plan. God is a God who makes a way for his people. And I can't wait to show you guys that. So um, I have one major point. That's it. And then a couple sub points. So that's where we're going. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 3. And let me remind you again where we're at. David in this moment is hiding in a cave. David in this moment is hiding because he's being hunted by his father-in-law, King Saul. King Saul hears about where David could be located, and he gets 3,000 men, okay? He, he rallies up all of his troops. He gets his Navy SEALs. He says, let's go get David. We got to eliminate the threat. And David simply goes into hiding. He's not hunting Saul. He's hiding from Saul. And what he's doing is he's simply hiding in a cave, trying to avoid being caught and captured by his insecure father-in-law, okay? And so that is the setting. And here's what happens in verse 3. It's kind of a rather awkward scene. So pay attention to some of the language here. He said this, And he, that's Saul, came to the sheepfold, by the way, there, uh, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, can we just make a couple observations from this text real quick? Um, Can we just all appreciate how honest the Bible is? Can we please just acknowledge that if you and I were writing this story, this is maybe not the scene that you would set up in the right location during a bathroom break between the current king and the future king. Like, this feels like a rather awkward scene. And it seems to me Saul's the guy that you get in a road trip with, and he's the dude who's 30 minutes outside of Omaha. Like, let's pull over. I got to go again, again. I got to use the rest. You're like, seriously, bro. Hold it like a grown man or stop drinking your 44-ounce big ounce, okay? The big gulp, okay? Like, it's one of the two, all right? Does anybody else get mildly competitive with their spouse? Nobody else here? Me and my wife will have a competition like, listen, um, I'm not going to be the one that taps out, so I'm going to embrace all the pain that's happening in this region. And so you can tap out or I can tap out. I mean, it could go real wrong. I mean, there's a level of commitment that you cross over. You know, we try to, we get a little competitive. Okay, nobody else does that. Well... We're seeing, we're seeing the counselor. Okay, so that's, that's happening in this text. Saul's the guy that says, pull over the convoy. convoy. I've got to use the restroom. But this is more than an awkward scene between uh, David and Saul in a cave with a bathroom break. This is filled with all kinds of tensions. Because imagine you're David. And we read this verse in just a few chapters. But this is David's life for some scholars say seven, eight years. He's being pursued on the run for seven, eight years. And now you're looking at the man and you're saying, this is the man who drove me away from my wife. I haven't slept in my bed for years because of this man's actions. 
I've been run out of my position of authority. I lost my job. I've been slandered publicly. I've been hunted. This man's trying to kill me, and he's right in front of me. What would you feel in that moment? That's what David is feeling. Have you ever seen somebody face-to-face who wounded you? They hurt you in a real way. They said something about you that wasn't true. They left you in a moment in a season where you needed them the most. That's what this man would have been feeling. David, all of his pain, all of the drama in his life, all of the hard circumstances, again, David has not sinned. All the drama in his life is not tied to mistakes he made, which is half the problem in my life is tied to mistakes I made. But that's not David. David's drama is tied to some mistakes somebody else made. His father-in-law is insecure, not walking with the Lord, mistaking the real threat. And all of a sudden, he's the one who's created drama in his life. That's where David's at. And now all of a sudden, Saul wanders into the very cave that you're hiding from him at. And you're thinking to yourself, he's away from his bodyguards. He's away from his army. I've got the upper hand. When in the story do I have the upper hand in the surprise attack? It feels like all of the circumstances are going my way. And David's men feel the same temptation. And they think to themselves, if we just end Saul right now, all of the drama goes away. Here's the thing. Let me show you verse 4. It says this. And the men of David uh, said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Here's the thing. Here's, the, here's what the guys are saying. David's like, hey, bro, bro, are you kidding me? This man who's trying to kill you wandered into the same cave that we're hiding in. Are you kidding me, bro? This is our chance. Get up. Go kill this man, or let me go kill this man. Either way, it ends today, okay? So they're thinking to themselves, we couldn't have lined up these circumstances any better. I mean, this has to be of the Lord's will. And they're trying to doctor up, um, really making this advice to David sound really spiritual, okay? This is not good and godly advice. They're asking David to go kill God's anointed king which would have been communicating to God, listen, God, I know that you've promised to make a way for me, but you're not making a way for me, so I'm going to make a way for myself. That is what would have been communicated if David would have taken this situation into his own hands. He would have been said, God, you're either not powerful to remove this man from power, so I need to do it for you, or God, your timing isn't according to my timing, isn't aligned with my timing. And so obviously I need to fast forward the story, get myself out of this season and get to the crown and get to the throne. And you're not doing it fast enough, so I'm going to find a way to make it happen for myself. That's what would have happened if David would have killed Saul in this moment. And all of the encouragement from his friends was go murder this man. And by the way, David doesn't have a problem murdering people. He's killed people, he's killed lions, he's killed bears, he's killed enemies, he's slain slain some people. But this is a unique situation because this is not just killing someone, this is murdering God's anointed, the one that God put on the throne, the the one that God is saying, I put him there and if I want to take him out, I will, but that's my choice to make. And so what would have been communicated is, I don't trust you to make a way for me, I've got to make a way for myself. And so David stands up. He moved towards Saul. All of his buddies has to be thinking, okay, it's about to go a game over here. And they understand if David kills Saul, here's what happens. Their circumstances get a lot better, don't they? David's not hiding in a cave at the end of the night. He's sleeping in a palace. Everybody in the land knows he's the next one to be king. And all of his men who are hiding with him and riding with him, do that not know? If David becomes king, who do I become? I get a job. 
I become CFO, I became captain of the army, I become the guy who's in charge of the livestock, I become the guy who's in charge of this. I get to become one of the entrusted members at David's table because I've been riding with them from the beginning. So their encouragement is let's take the shortcut because I'm done with this season, I'm ready for the next season. That's the encouragement. But the Spirit of God ministers to David. As he stands up, he realizes this is, just, this is not just executing a man in a cave. This is murdering God's anointed. The, the decision on the table is, will I compromise God's ways and God's word just to experience God's blessing? He realized that's not a deal I can make. And so he pulls back. He cuts off a little part of a robe. And he doesn't kill Saul, but he just simply does that to communicate later to Saul, I could have killed you if that was my intent towards you okay and so he comes back and all of his bros are like um did you swing and miss did we have a little situation you get a little nervous and you need me go stand up and and handle this and here's what he says in chapter uh, in verse six here's what he says he said to his men the lord forbid that i should do this thing to my lord the lord's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing he is the lord's anointed look at verse 7 too it said and david persuaded his men with these words and he did not permit them to attack saul so saul rose up and left the cave and went away here's the situation this is a picture um, number one of a warning when you're in a heavy and hard season can we just um, acknowledge that sometimes you're going to be in a hard season and your friends are going to mean really good advice they're going to try to they're well intended but they're going to give you horrible advice like sometimes your friends in heavy and hard seasons are going to try they're, they're trying to get you into a better place but they want to pursue ungodly means to get you there have you ever had a friend that loves you but they just give like the worst advice in the world nobody else has that family member Okay, and here's what it sounds like. Literally, like for me in this season of my life, I have a lot of friends. We've got little kids. It's a chaotic season. And so I, I literally can hear this narrative that God wants you to be happy. And your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. And your kids aren't who you thought they would be. And so why don't you go ahead and pursue that affair? Why don't you text that coworker back? Because God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Hasn't he set up those circumstances in just the right way and that person's attracted to you and you're attracted to them and, and you seem to have better chemistry with you and you only get one life? So cut bait. You, you were designed to be happy instead of committed to the promise that you made before a holy and righteous God. Have you ever heard really horrible advice? Like God wants you to be happy, so go ahead and upgrade your lifestyle and just buy more crap that you really can't afford to buy? Put it on the debit card, swipe the credit card, do the thing, upgrade your lifestyle. It's, it's good to have it now, and it's really horrible advice. And so I just want to acknowledge that I think David was hearing from the Spirit of God, not listening to really uh, well-intended friends that were giving what may sound like great strategies according to the world's wisdom, but to God, it's foolishness. Amen? We've got to learn to di- differentiate uh, the two. And what's happening in the next verses, 6 and 7, is that David decides to listen to God, hear from God, and obey God. And then he comes back, and he's a, really a picture of healthy, good spiritual leadership. He says, I'm not going to send it against God. I'm going to obey God. I'm not taking the compromise. And not only that, the people who are riding with me, I just want to let you know, you're not either. Like, I'm not letting you fall into sin. I'm not letting you go and compromise your faith. If you're going to ride with me, I want to call you to wait and trust that God will make a way for all of us. Amen? That's a good picture of healthy and spiritual leadership. And so that's what's happening here. And he comes back, and I think his life is preaching louder than his words, church. Because David's life is preaching. He's saying, listen, I'm not going to take the shortcut. 
I'm not going to rationalize the sin. I'm not going to compromise. If I've got to sin against the God who created me just to get to the palace, then I would rather stay in this cave and wait on God. I would rather trust that God's going to make a way for me than to sin against the God that created me and promise that he has a plan for me just to accelerate where I want to be in my life. I'm not taking that deal, and I'm not taking that compromise. Is that not a beautiful picture of obedience? Because let's be honest, when you're in a heavy and hard season, don't you just want to get out of it? And doesn't a lifeline look really nice? And David is saying, I would rather stay here and be in a posture of obedience to my God than take a compromise and disrespect and step out of God's ways and and violate God's word and sin against the God who loved me and created me. That is a beautiful picture. And I come to this and say, church, have we not all felt that same temptation? Nobody else has ever felt the temptation to try to do it your way, to, to, to violate God's word, to, to try to take the compromise on the table, to get ahead of God's timing. Sometimes we can run after really, really, really good things, but you just know it's not God's timing and it's not God's way. And you try to justify the journey to get to the ends that you see as desirable. And uh, I look at this and I say, David hit a home run here. David obeys the Lord. David resists temptation. Uh, David is going to wait on God. David is going to trust that God is going to make a way for him. And I look at this and I applaud that. And then I look at this and I say, I'm not like David that often. <laughs> like there's more chapters of my life where I've taken the compromise, it seems like, than I've waited on God to make a way. Can, can we just acknowledge that we're not just innocent people here that study our Bible, but this is actually one that says, bro, if this is the standard, I've probably blown it in some ways. And I just want to be the first from this stage, even as your pastor in front of your kids, to say I'm not the innocent pastor that just studies the Bible and teaches you guys the principles. I'm a guy that was guilty, and I've taken the compromise, and I've taken the deal. And if you're like me, and you try to get ahead of God's timing, and you're like me, and you didn't trust God's plan, and you're like me, and you didn't trust God's word because you did it according to your ways and not his way, can I just preach good news to folks that might be feeling some guilt in this moment? that took the shortcut, that took the deal, that took the compromise, that took maybe the easier way out and didn't trust God. If you're like that and you're like me, can I just preach the good news to some folks in this room? Here's what I want to preach. There's there's good news in this because this points us to a king who never did compromise, right? Who who is is the greater David. And uh, the deal for Jesus was this. He was in the desert for 40 days and he was tempted. And the deal was if you take this deal and you, dis, uh, you disobey God the Father, all of your circumstances will get changed. I'll give you fame and comfort and wealth and everybody will know you. And it was an absolute shortcut to glory and Jesus didn't take the deal. And you know what? I know why that's a good news and why he did it. He did it because me, he knew me and you never could. He knew that me and you are gonna get impatient. He knew me and you are gonna fall into sin. He knew me and you are gonna take the compromising deal. And so the great news of the gospel is our hope isn't that we get better at not justifying our sin. The great news of the gospel and our hope in the gospel is that Jesus Christ never did justify his sin and that his obedience covers our disobedience, church, that his perfection covers our compromise and that his sacrifice covers our sin. Is that not the good news of the gospel that we had a king that came and did for us what we could never do for ourselves? And so I just wanna preach to some of you guys here today You know the compromise you made. You didn't wait on the Lord uh, physically in an area of your relationship with somebody. You haven't been trusting God with your finances. You took the compromise and the deal. You cheated in that class because you thought you needed to to get into the place that you thought you needed to go to. You've been in that place. Feel the weight of your sin and look at Jesus Christ and know that there's a king that forgives you and he's never compromised and his righteousness is enough for me and you. Amen? 
If somebody doesn't clap right now, because I'm preaching gospel truth and y'all are looking at me like I'm preaching to somebody else. Again, I'm the only guilty one that compromised. Okay, we're going to go to Romans. Something about all have fallen short of the glory of God. I didn't quite get that all part coming this morning. Uh, So a couple things uh, I want to do. What I love about this text is it communicates what happens in this dialogue and in this interaction between Saul and David, okay? But what it doesn't do is show us how David was interacting with God in the midst of this season. And so what I want to do right now is the question I asked is if the standard is obeying God and not compromising God in heavy and hard seasons, if that's what God wants for us is to be steadfast people who don't uh, fall into the temptation that is in front of us, then okay, let's, let's agree with that and let's affirm that. But then the question I asked in this text is how? Like God, how do you do that? How do you, because I know myself, how do you walk with God and wrestle with the God in such a way that you have the motivation and the means to resist temptation and to stay faithful? And what I've learned is sometimes in this story of David, you get the events, but you don't see his vertical relationship with God. You often see the horizontal relationships that he has with other people, but you don't get to see his private worship life, the way he was working this out with the Lord. And so you've got to go to the book of Psalms, uh, where David's prayer life, his worship life was recorded. It's literally his prayer journal. And so Psalm 57, we're going to go there today. Psalm 57 is literally David in this cave during this time while he's being pursued by Saul. It's what he wrote. It's how he interacted with God. It was his prayer to the Lord that morning when he woke up and had his morning quiet time, okay? And uh, here's why I want to go to this. I think we're going to learn two different things about how do we navigate these hard and heavy seasons and what does it look like to trust that God will make a way. I think we're going to see some insight into David's relationship with God. And so I want to show us two things. The first thing is if we're going to be people who make it through hard and heavy seasons, one, I want to encourage us to be people who believe God's promises, that we be people who believe God's promises. And uh, we're going to go to verse 2 real quick. I'm going to show you guys this real quick. Let's go to 57, chapter 57, verse 2 in the book of Psalms. Here's what he says. I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Again, the thing I want to call us to do is be a people who believe God's promises. But I want you to notice the first two or three words in this verse. He says, I cry out to God. How many of you guys know that you have an option when you find yourself in a hard and heavy season? You're either going to run to God or you're going to run from him. And I love that David modeled something for us. He said, I'm going to cry out to God. And what I mean by that is, church, if you're trying to tell God everything you think he needs to hear from you, stop playing that game. That's not a real relationship with God. That's a fake relationship with God. Get real with God. I think David got super real with God. He was crying out to the Lord, this is why it feels messy, and this is why I feel abandoned, and this is why things are hard, and this is why I miss my wife, and God, why is your timing feel late? Have you ever went to the Lord and just simply cried out to him? Because God promised that you have access to to God's presence because of Jesus Christ, and that God the Father is not a distant deity, but he is your Abba Father, who you can crawl up on his lap and cry out to him, and he will receive you, and he will hear you. Would we be a people that don't let our dialogue with God grow silent in hard and heavy seasons? Amen? we got to trust his promises, and that's what he says in the second part of this. He said, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me, And what he means by this is, listen, I've got a crazy king pursuing me. I got an army coming after me. I don't have any power and any influence, but here's what I got. I got a God that's bigger than all that. 
See, I got a God whose plans can't be hindered. I got a God who will, who will keep his promises to his people. I got a God whose ways can't be stopped. I got a God who's got a purpose for my life, and he's going to fulfill his purpose for my life. That's my confidence in the midst of this storm, is I got a God bigger than all of it. He fulfills his purposes. And you're like, okay, listen, I'm not health, wealth, and all prosperity preaching here. I'm not telling you, listen, you just got to wait on the promises and purposes of God because he's going to make a way for you to get that promotion and for things to turn out right and you're going to get the blessing here. But you know what? God hasn't promised that you're going to be a king. God hasn't promised that you're going to wear a crown, but God has promised you what? In Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, what has he promised you? That he walk all things together for the good of those who love him. And he's going to work for your highest good and he's going to work for his highest glory even in the midst of this hard season. Do you believe that, church? That even right now in the midst of hard things and unanswered prayers and in storms, that God is working for his glory and he's working for your good right now. That is a promise that you've got to hold on to. And can I just tell you why, why I'm so excited about this and why I'm preaching this so hard this morning? It's because there's times in your life where the only thing you're going to have to hold on to is the promises of Jesus Christ. Because the bottle's not going to fix you. The pill's not going to fix you. That rebound relationship's not going to fix you. The only thing that will give you hope in that hard and heavy season and really minister to your weary, exhausted soul are the promises of Jesus Christ, that he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that you are fully righteous in him, that he has a purpose for your life, that he's working out for your good and his glory even in the midst of the craziness. And sometimes you can't see it, but the only thing you can hold on to is promises. Amen? would be a church that believe his promises. Number two, the second thing I want to show you guys is that we would treasure his presence in the midst of hard and heavy seasons. Here, look at verse seven. Here's what he says. My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and I will make melody. Listen, this man is in a cave, y'all. Okay, can you picture how awkward this scene is? He's in a cave that smells like an outhouse. He's like, bring up the worship band. We're going to sing a choir and chorus today that God is good because i got to make a melody. My heart is full and my lips are about to sing. We're going to worship the Lord in this cave. Is this not a beautiful picture of praising God along the way? And here's what I'm saying. Part of the Christian life, you're going to have to make a choice. Which one do you want to be a part of? The Christian life can be you experiencing a God that can change your circumstances. Or you experiencing a God that can give you joy and peace and love in the midst of any circumstances. You're either going to be constantly frustrated that God's not getting where you think you need to be, or you're going to enjoy him along the journey. Because here's what David is doing. He's saying, this is the God that created me, the one that has sustained me, the one that has provided for me, the one that has protected me, the one that has forgiven me, and I'm stuck in this cave, and I don't see the way out to get from here to there. But you know what I got in the midst of this cave? I don't got no crown. I don't got no throne. I don't see I have no wife next to me. I don't have anywhere to sleep but in this stanky cave. But you know what I got? I got the presence of God right here, and I'm about to make a joyful noise. Y'all are looking at me crazy. Have you not ever sung when it don't make sense to start singing? Because God is still real and Jesus is still alive and your God is bigger than your circumstances and you can enjoy the presence of God. Not when you get there, but right here. Listen, the Christian life is like a great road trip. On a great road trip, rule number one of a great road trip, it don't even matter where you going but who you riding with. And I'm going to get ghetto right now because I've been speaking your contextual suburban language and it's not working, okay? On a great road trip, 
I don't even care where we going. We can go to Shadron, Council Bluffs, New Mexico. I don't care where we going, but if I got my boys with me, if I got my wife with me, if the jams are on and I'm in a good place with you, we can ride anywhere because I know it's going to be bomb, okay? Now, listen, that matters. Isn't that to Christian life? It's not about the destination, it's about the journey, and it's about who you're riding with. If you have a king of all kings who loves you and has promised good things to you, then you need to stop looking at the destination. Heaven is not the key. Heaven is not the problem. That's not the thing I'm just looking forward to. I'm saying, God, I got you right here in the midst of this cave, and sometimes that's got to be enough. And you got to just say, God, I'm going to make a joyful noise right here, even though I had the miscarriage, even though we've had the season of infertility. Even though I feel broke and forgotten, even though my dad hasn't picked up the phone, even though me and my wife are at odds, even though my circumstances are broken, God is God and he's still worthy. He's still been good to me. And if he doesn't give me another good thing on this side of eternity, has he not given me enough in Jesus Christ? I'm going to enjoy the presence of God right now. Would we be the kind of people who in the midst of the storm, in the midst of having hard seasons, say, God... On the outside, I ain't got no reason to sing, but on the inside, I got every reason because your Holy Spirit is upon me and you've been good and gracious to me. So I'm gonna sing this day, amen? And listen, I wanna just affirm our church. I look around this room. I know some of your guys' story. Um, you got family members that haven't been healed. You got finances that are hard. You've got marriages that are tough. You got kids that are in rebellion and yet you show up here week after week, week after week, week after week in the watching world to be like, why are you singing to Jesus? Your life is a hot mess, and you're saying, God has been good to me. I want to enjoy his presence, and in my heart, my heart is steadfast, my heart is full, and my lips are going to say, it is well in my soul. Amen? Amen. All right. Let me finish with this. Let me close with this. Um, I want to land the plane by pointing this story to the greater and ultimate king, King Jesus. And I think where we see this is, is where David was hated by an insecure man with an army. Jesus was hated by a mob of religious leaders who felt threatened by him. Where David had to wait in a cave, Jesus had to wait in the garden and pray, Lord, your will be done for my life. For David, obedience in this story meant sparing Saul's life. But obedience for Jesus didn't just mean sparing someone else's life. It meant dying for his very enemies. He would shed his blood so that we could have eternal life. And why did he do it? Why did Jesus come as the good and ultimate king? Well, he did it because he knew me and you needed him to. He knew that we would never be able to patiently wait on the Lord perfectly, that we wouldn't always trust God to make a way, that we wouldn't always be quick to sing, but sometimes we would grumble. He knew that we would be a people who needed a king that was greater and that was ultimate and that was perfect. And so Jesus came to be that king. And here's the great news about Jesus Christ. He doesn't just come to make a way through your hard circumstances. He has promised to be near to you in your circumstances and to sustain you in your circumstances and be near to you in your hard relationships. God will make a way. But God, the greatest story you ever wrote is that God will make a way for us to have eternal life. And he did that by dying on a cross for our sins. He did that by defeating our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He did that by raising from the grave. Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be reconciled back into right relationship with our Father. And that's our great hope today. Amen.
So this morning, uh, we're going to just remember, church, that God is a God that makes a way. We're going to respond by taking communion. And let me give a little thought to communion here this morning. Just because it's a family Sunday, I want to let you know uh, your kids are welcome here. But if, they're, uh, if you're not confident that they know Jesus yet, uh, maybe they're part of our church family, but they haven't believed in him personally and made that decision, just encourage them to sit and uh, observe this moment. If they're walking with Jesus and they're six, seven, eight years old, doesn't matter their age, have them come and take communion. They're, they're more than welcome. Uh, but this, this is a moment where we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Uh, And so we take these not lightly, but this really is a picture of the gospel that we come forward to receive what we haven't earned, that we have a king that gave his life so that we wouldn't have to. And so uh, let's come forward with the spirit of gratitude this morning. We're gonna have community stations in the front and in the back, gluten-free station uh, in the back as well. As well, we always have a prayer team here. And uh, again, folks, I just wanna encourage you. I feel like every week in prayer time, in the back, just so you know, we've got like seven people that go pray. And I'm thinking to myself, is your life that awesome? Because <laughs> like, I need prayer every week. And I'm not trying to hate on you. I'm just keeping it real that there's like not a week that I would say, please don't pray for me. Uh, and so if you're going through something, your marriage is in a place, you've been compromising, you've been taking the deal Uh, you've been trying to take the shortcut, you haven't been trusting God to make a way, whatever that is, would you just come back there? I'd love to pray for you personally. I'll be back there and uh, love to ask the Lord to be near to you in this season of your life. So we're going to take communion. We're going to be in the back praying. Additionally, uh, we're going to have a time uh, where we worship the Lord. So would you guys go ahead and stand up? Communion forward. You can come forward. I'll pray right now. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. God, I'm so grateful. I want to pray for two things. Number one, I want to pray for those in the room. um, That God, they're just in a season that feels heavy and hard. They're in a covenant that they've made with their spouse that feels heavy and hard. They're in a relationship with a a, uh, kid that feels heavy and hard. They're in a financial situation that feels heavy and hard. They're in a depression that feels like it won't lift. God, I just want to pray that you would sustain and that your promises would be true for them and they would be able to hold on by your grace in this heavy and hard season. God, would you minister to them? Holy Spirit, minister to them right now, Jesus, we ask. And I pray for uh, those in this room who, who realize that, God, you've made a way for us, not just through some hard past relationships or circumstances, but that, God, you've made a way for us ultimately to have a relationship with you. I just want to pray right now that we would sing in spite the devil. <laughs> that, God, we would sing out right now, Jesus Christ, you are worthy. It is well with my soul. God, you have forgiven, and God, you have kept, and God, you have promised, and God, you've been good. So, Jesus, would our praise be bigger than our circumstances? And would we hold on to you right now in your presence, right here in this moment, God? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.